The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Celebrating tenures through the community. This is created by The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Um, and uh, welcome to uh, Trinity Long Room Hub. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our guest speaker, David Lloyd. Uh, David is an experienced radio programmer, producer, manager, and broadcaster. He's done almost everything uh, in radio you can think of with a huge range of work in radio across the UK over many years. Uh, his passion for radio remains undimmed, and it's wonderful to have him speaking with us today, and he'll be speaking to us on, as you can see, the art and policy of music broadcasting. David Lloyd, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. I haven't done anything yet, but thank you for the applause. I, I, we'll take questions later on, so if there are things you want to ask me, then uh, feel free to write them down. Uh, because it's all at the end where they say, any questions and nobody says a word. So please prepare a, a wonderful question uh, that I won't be able to answer. Um, I am a radio programmer, a radio manager. I've run lots of radio stations for about 30 years. And in essence, what you do if you program a radio station is you work out who the audience is you want, you work out what music you're going to play, if it's a music radio station, and what is that music, what songs, how are they going to be played, and also the, the, the presenters, or as we call them in Radioland, the talent. Uh, and uh, they can be very awkward, prickly people, but that's not tonight's subject. That's for maybe over a glass of wine a little bit later on. But together, you hope that the music and the presenters will deliver an audience, and I am judged as a programmer as to whether people want to listen to my radio station. And it's tough, that, though. It's increasingly competitive, trying to attract an audience. And of course, now with streaming and everything else that's around, it's getting more and more competitive and more and more exciting, the world that you're graduating into. So, uh, hi, I'm David. Good to see you. Um, so tonight, I thought um, I'm going to share some of the secrets of how it works, how we actually do program the output of a radio station, and shed some light on the, the art of it, and to a certain extent the science of it, alongside the policy matters that actually govern the radio you have in Ireland and, and we have across in the UK. So that's what I'm proposing to do tonight, but I'm going to start a very, very long time ago, because when you think about music and how it all started, you know, the people banging pots and pans together in, in, in village huts and whatever, how did those melodies get communicated? Well, you know, through the generations, people singing to each other, live performances in, in churches, bandstands, all this sort of thing, and then uh, started to write down the melodies on manuscript paper, and then, lo and behold, the gramophone, you know, the record, which was 1877. So, you know, the first record player, 1877, which I know sounds a long time ago, and it is, but in a sense, it isn't really in the fullness of time. It's only 50 years older than my dad was, so, you know, it's just a couple of generations ago. So, you know, eventually you've got a record that you can hand and, and, and you, can, you can play in different places. But then comes the magic of radio, and how exciting that must have been. You know, you could play a cello in Dublin, and it could be heard in Paris. And how, how incredible that must have been. I come from Nottingham. Anybody know Nottingham? Anybody been to Nottingham? Yes, it's known for stagnites, but it's got a lot of other lovely things as well. Uh, I live in Nottingham, in England, uh, in the Midlands of the, uh, uh, the UK, and um, 
the other day was the 95th anniversary of the first ever radio station. I, I, I like my history. Uh, and it was launched on a dark October night in 1924. You can imagine how excited Nottingham was about this, 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 this new radio, this new thing called radio. It's a bit like something radio would be. You know, voices coming out of a thing for the very first time. Opening night, as I say, it was raining. They hired the local hall for an outside broadcast. They got the RAF band uh, there. Um, Wagner was the first melody they, they, they played, one of his uh, uh, tunes. Uh, that was the first song that they played. It wasn't really a song, uh, but it was a piece of music they played first of all. And they also had um, live speeches from the, the, the luminaries of the day, which included a very young Lord Reith, who was later to be the first Director General of the BBC, but also the um, Lord Mayor was there. And he was giving a speech. And such was the excitement about this station that the speech was relayed on the other radio stations, the other brand new radio stations across Britain. And so he stood there and he said, tonight I am standing in Nottingham speaking to more people than any human being has ever spoken to before. And that was true because before radio, how could you get music, words, from one place to another? How exciting was that? It's a great story. Now, what about the, the first sorts of music that were played? Um, well, here's an interesting tale of a, a, one of the very early stations, long before the one in Nottingham, uh, one of the first entertainment music radio stations called 2MT in Rittle in Essex. And they were putting together elementary programmes. They were including music uh, in those programmes. In fact, they used to get the piano from the local pub and wheel, for special occasions, and wheel it up to the radio station to play songs on it, uh, play tunes on it, for this, this radio station. So it did the very first entertainment on a, on a radio station. And then, one special night, they had the first ever big entertainer, the first ever big name, the diva. Anybody know who uh, this person is? It is, it could be anybody. It could be somebody I just got off Google randomly. But uh, it is uh, Dame Nellie Melba. And you've heard of Peach Melba. There is a connection between Nellie Melba and Peach Melba. Um, and she was a huge name. She was a, a soprano. She was Australian. And she was, you know, the, the Ariana Grande of her day. She was a big name. So they invited her to appear on this new invented radio station. I can't imagine how they spoke to her about it. They would say, uh, Nellie, would you like to appear on the radio? And she probably said... What, what, what's radio? And legend has it, when she arrived at the radio station, which is out of a hut, a uh, big aerial sticking out the top, she said, I'm not going up there, because she didn't quite <laughs> realise that that's not what you have to do. And it's a very primitive old hut with a, a concrete floor, and they put a carpet down for Dame Nellie Melba, and she gave the, the first ever performance. So this was billed as, uh, and this was 1923, uh, this was billed as the first entertainment broadcast 1920, in fact, or 23. The first entertainment broadcast of any music on any radio station. Uh, it predates anything that happened in Ireland, although you know, radio was here as well, doing other things. But as far as uh, a celebrity on the air was concerned, uh, Dame Nellie Melba was the, uh, the, the name that everybody remembers as uh, having uh, carried off that particular uh, feat with that uh, entertainment broadcast. And it was interesting, too, because... Um, this broadcast was uh, from a hut, and the 
technology was dreamt up by Marconi, and the Marconi Works were one of the technology companies who were actually creating these early radio stations. The reason I mention that is, here you have the people who are in charge of the technology creating the content. So the people who invented the radio gave themselves the breakfast show. You know, they created what was on it. And fast forward to now, and now we've got streaming, and we've got Facebook, and we've got Spotify, and suddenly you've got, again, the people who are you know, creating the platform also deciding what content goes on it. So we've sort of come full circle, really, to a world where, again, the people who create the technology, the people who create the platform, are deciding what's on it, which is exactly what happened uh, back in the days of, uh, of Marconi. Lots and lots of uh, small stations uh, around. Uh, here in Dublin, you had 2RN from Thorpe, Denmark Street, uh, which became sort of amalgamated in Radio Athlone and then onto Radio, uh, Radio Aaron. So again, you had the same sort of thing. You had live performances as well. Apparently, there was one notable pianist uh, called Dinah Copeman, who described the studio in Dublin as ramshackle, dark, and dismal. Not like a studio at all. Not quite sure how she knew what a studio looked like, if it was all so new, but there we are. And uh, on that station, again, they had lots of uh, music. The station manager of 2RN used to sing, as did his wife. And rather like people uh, mode about commercial radio, particularly playing the same songs over and over again nowadays, I'm just wondering whether people back in the, the 20s thought that about this, 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 uh, this poor family. It's not her singing again, is it? Surely. But, uh, but so they did on, on 2RN, which, as I say, evolved into uh, Radio Aaron in, uh, in a few years' time. In London, we had uh, 2LO. That was the, the big station in the, the capital city. And again, music starting to play a part on that radio station as well. And they, they did play records. They were playing gramophone records. Uh, but it was all very primitive. And I gather the gramophone was rather like one of those old radio grams, like a huge piece of furniture with all the gubbins built in that they would play the records on that were broadcast on the radio. And it was very primitive. Apparently, I don't know if you've seen any of those sort of radio grounds with a record player and a radio. You've probably seen them in antique shops. Uh, they're like a huge bit of furniture with like doors and things like that. So it looks like a sideboard, but no, no, no. It's a record player and a radio uh, concealed. And apparently, when they wanted to fade the music down, they closed the doors of the sideboard. <laughs> it was it's great stuff, isn't it? So that's what used to happen on, on 2LO, the, uh, the huge radio station uh, which broadcast to, to London. So. What have you got there? I think the interesting thing to point out when we look at the, the policy of broadcasting is that, first of all, it's entertainment. In those, that early, earliest wave of radio in both our countries was really about entertainment. There was information, there was information, but there was also a lot of entertainment. These entrepreneurs, these technicians creating something that their family wanted to listen to. So a lot of music as, as part of that. And as I say, the technicians were controlling the, the content. Um, so it was also commercial, in a sense. These were, these were companies. So it's entertainment, it's commercial. Those are the origins of radio in both Ireland and in uh, Great Britain as well. But then what happened is, really, governments in both countries started to realize the power, the potential of this new medium, the influence of this new medium. So you see here the first uh, Prime Minister of Ireland, Douglas Hyde, in 1926. Wireless will both, both be an advantage both physically and mentally to the body. Wow. So they were aware of its 
power, its influence, and you see the, the change here from the entertainment of those entrepreneurs into the this more of a public service. Let's make it serious, etc. That, that shift. Uh, in both Ireland and in Great Britain as well. Across in uh, Britain, we had, of course, uh, John Reith, uh, who became Lord Reith. He was the general manager of the British Broadcasting Company, which became the British Broadcasting Corporation. He became the first director general. And again, broadcasting will not become a commercialised form of entertainment consisting of cheap music and cheaper thrills. So radio was destined to be in both Ireland and Britain, uh, you know, some entertainment, but actually stuff that was good for you. That was the intention of uh, radio. I, I've got all the uh, BBC yearbooks back home. It won't surprise you to learn. Right back from 1928 to uh, when they stopped bothering in, in the late 60s. And in the very early ones, there's a wonderful um, poster about how to listen to radio. They were very concerned that people wouldn't listen attentively to radio. So there was a list of instructions. It was like, you know, find a comfy chair, turn the lights down, forbid everyone to speak. You know, they really were trying to get people to concentrate on what was coming out of the radio. And in those days, listeners were called listeners in. That was the word, listeners in. And there was a decree then from John Reith to say, actually, you know, just call them listeners. Uh, a bit like the word viewers, that, was, that came out of a competition. Because viewers, you don't view television, do you? you sort of watch it and that. Viewers was a word they invented, and listeners was a word that somebody came up with. But originally, it was listeners in to these uh, bright new radio stations that were, um, that were on air at last. And then things stayed much the same. I'm not going to go through every decade in detail, don't worry, but through the 20s, through the 30s, through the 40s, through the 50s, into the 60s, radio stayed much the same in Ireland and in Britain. And if now you think, gosh, technology staying the same, you know, every year there's a new Apple phone, you know. But actually, the, 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 the technology and the content was roughly the same sort of model through all those generations. And listeners weren't very happy about it. Uh, because they wanted something a bit different. They were getting anxious. And they also thought that the broadcasters, the, the state broadcasters, they're not quite state broadcasters, but you know what I mean, the BBC and, and uh, Radio Air and later uh, RTE, um, they, they were a bit staid, particularly on Sundays. They were very religious, very sombre, and so a lot of listeners were wanting something a bit more exciting. But you couldn't get it. The only way you could hear, I mean, I'm going right through to the, the 60s, the only way you could hear anything more than that was to go and listen to stations from other countries, like Radio Luxembourg. Um, yes, Radio Luxembourg, um, broadcast from Luxembourg, just a great big aerial and a very high power, and people uh, just right across Europe could listen to Radio Luxembourg. There were, were other uh, broadcasters as well that did much the same things. IBC was, was another one. So continental broadcasters were realising that actually you could broadcast to, to Britain and to Ireland and people would listen because everything else is a little bit dull. So Radio Luxembourg was on the air and was huge. And I suppose it's a bit like you don't like anything on the radio, so you stream a station now. It was sort of... And it wasn't just the, the anoraks like me, it was normal people were tuning to these foreign stations because it was the only way you could get um, entertainment that was quite lively. And one interesting thing about this era is that, to take a look at how the relationship between the music business and radio was starting to take shape. 
when Radio Luxembourg was on the air, broadcasting on a very famous wavelength of 208, um, many of the programmes were sponsored by record companies. So there's the exchange of value. That's a record company realising the value of radio, wanting to get their records played on the radio and not at the people's records. So they pay the radio station, the record labels pay the radio station to play the music. Now you'd call that payola, illegal. Uh, but then it was, it was absolutely fine. Um, so that's what happened. And here's a little example of uh, uh, the record company Decca, Decca, Decca Records. Hang on a second, that's it. So there we are, sponsored record programs, sponsored by the record companies themselves. Uh, probably relatively interesting, but uh, uh, fairly confined to, to the work of one particular record label uh, signing. And this is happening in Ireland, it's happening in Great Britain. Meanwhile, overseas, chaos. In other countries in the world, they are starting up radio stations, pop radio stations, 24 hours a day. Wow, you know, it's, I've uh, mentioned the word chaos, it really was in America. They were using all sorts of frequencies, all sorts of radio stations doing all sorts of things. So when British radio was sounding, you know, lots of classics, lots of light music, lots of received pronunciation, uh, lots of education, that was how British and Irish radio was, uh, largely. Um, Irish radio is slightly less so because you had an element of commercial radio in there. Uh, at, at uh, Radio Air, and so yeah, I think yours was um, probably a little livelier than, than we had on the light program in, in Britain. Overseas, meanwhile, this is uh, America. Have a listen to how American radio sounded at the same time. playing music, a lot of British music, ironically, you know, we're making all this wonderful music in the 60s, but we haven't got a radio station to play it on. Elsewhere around the world, they're having great fun. I mean, how over the top, you see. Uh, in, in radio language, we call him a boss jock, which is that, that sound, a presenter, where they just smile and be happy and project all the time, and everything looks wonderful, and the sun's always shining, and etc. That sort of energy is called a boss. I could do it quite well, I? I was one once. Um, that, that's how American radio uh, sounded. So, you know, you've got this dilemma, really, where you've got these very conservative radio stations in Britain and Ireland, and around the world they've got pop radio 24 hours a day. So what happens is, well, the market takes over, you get disruption. You know, rather like Uber and taxis, you need somebody around the edge saying, hang on a minute, we can do things differently. And in come the pirate broadcasters, pirate radio stations. You had many of them here, land-based, 
uh, in the 60s. They worked all over the place, uh, actually from the, well, from the North Sea and from the, uh, the Irish Sea as well. And um, they were uh, literally broadcasting pop music uh, round the clock. And because they were outside territorial waters of any country, they didn't come in under the laws of the country. So they weren't illegal in those days, they were illegitimate. They were avoiding the law by just being outside territorial waters, just outside the limits, not covered by the law. They could just wave over to Britain and Britain could hear them, but they were out of the way. As I say, there was, Radio Caroline was in the North Sea, there was one in the Irish Sea as well. And these guys came on air and uh, started playing the pop music that, uh, that people wanted to, uh, to, to hear. <laughs> So that was uh, Radio Caroline in 1964, and the phrase they use there, the sort of, we call them strap lines, those, those lines that are used to describe the radio station, most, most stations have got a, a, a line, a few words that say this is what we do, and for Caroline it was your all-day music station. So for the first time really we were getting programming rather than programs. We used to have full service radio stations with you know an hour on a Thursday for jazz and then classics on a Tuesday and pop on a Wednesday. But here you had your all-day music station, you know, in brackets pop. So this is what we do whenever you turn us on, there'll be different presenters, but we are this all day, every day. So the start of programming, a flow, almost like a tap, you turn on a tap, you expect water to come out. These stations concentrated on what they did, so you turn it on and you get a particular sort of entertainment, whether that's pop music or jazz music or classic music. So um, that's what uh, Caroline started. I had the pleasure on a beautiful August day of uh, actually going round um, the last surviving pirate radio ship. I'm an anorak at heart. Uh, the, the, one of the Caroline ships is still it's being restored and they do tours around and do occasional broadcasts from it. So um, for me it was great to be on board on that wonderful day and imagine how it must have felt back in the 60s when you knew that you were playing a record to a, the youth of a young Britain and, and people were listening to it in their millions as you sat on the, the, the dark sea and you were the It's quite... Um, Quite a difficult job, as you, because they were playing records, and, and when the conditions got uh, tough on the ships, then uh, the, the records would bounce, the, the arm would come off, and they had to put coins on the arm to keep the arm actually uh, on the record. Of course, as you probably know, Radio Caroline was founded by an Irishman, uh, Brendan O'Reilly, and uh, he was frustrated. He was a, a music mogul, and he was sort of probably like the silent cow of his day, uh, a music mogul. He was frustrated that he couldn't get his records played. So he started Radio Caroline. That's how that whole chapter in British radio um, began. They were offering um, something rather different. And let's come back to that topic of the exchange of value between the musicians and the radio stations. Because suddenly these pirates were playing records and the artists were pretty pleased about this because the more their records were exposed, the more people were buying them. 
So you'd find the Sillablacks and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones supporting the pirate radio stations, going out there in a little boat, turning up at road shows. You're very keen to have their records played uh, on the radio. But there were others who thought, hang on a minute, somebody is making a business out of our music, and they're making money from it, and we're not. Uh, one of the pirate stations offered uh, its reporter to pay royalties, but because it was a pirate station, the royalty bodies didn't want to take money from the pirate operation, so turned it down. But you've got the start of this tension between the, the people who make the music and the people who broadcast the music. Because, of course, as you all know, every piece of music is, is owned by somebody. And that, that um, copyright rests in uh, the performers, it rests in the composers, it rests in the publishers, it, rec it rests also in the record company, the people who've invested in the distribution of the physical product. All these people have put money into music, and radio stations just merrily pay them. So there clearly needs to be an exchange of value. So unlike the early days when the record company was paying the radio station, you started to ease out of the pirates into an era where the radio station were paying the musicians more and more. Principally because, of course, you were replacing, it was said, live music. You know, and rather than pay a band, um, dance halls were playing records. So you, you, you weren't, the band wasn't getting paid because they were playing the records instead. So you started to get this uh, exchange of value. And in Ireland, you've now got IMRO, which is the copyright body, which literally takes the money from the radio station and distributes it to all the people who've been involved in a song. So every time you hear a song on the radio, Everybody who has been involved in that will get a slice of the action distributed by a central organisation. In Ireland it's IMRO, in, in Britain it's, it's uh, PRS, the Performing Right Society. You have to do it like that because otherwise every time you wanted to play a record, you'd have to pick up the phone and say, do you mind if I play your record? Is that alright? How much would you like? You know, trying to negotiate how many euros to make a record. You, clearly that's impractical. So you, know, you pay a lump sum to the copyright body and they distribute it. Uh, as regard to how many minutes of output has been broadcast. In commercial radio, it tends to be a proportion of your revenue. So if you're a radio station and you get £10 million in advertising revenues, all the artists who make the music will get a percentage of that. Uh, if it's um, a broadcaster like uh, RTE or BBC, it will be a, a set fee. If you're a streaming radio station, now if you went and started a, a, a streamed radio station tomorrow, your radio station playing music for you, say, you get a license and, and you pay for that. So that's how uh, it started to be. But in the early days, the, uh, the musicians, uh, the unions were fairly worried about the impact that radio was going to have uh, on record sales. They thought, hang on a minute, if you're playing the records all the time, who's going to buy them? So they had what was called needle time. And this was a restriction on the amount of music you could play. And it applied to whatever station you were, whether a classical station or a pop station or whatever, there was a restriction called needle time. And you, you were allowed something like eight hours, depending on what the agreement was, per week, and you had to spread that over the, the, the whole of your programs. And what stations tended to do was to play the most music in their peak shows, and then in the off-peak shows, they'd talk a lot to fill, fill the holes they're not allowed to play music. Or they'd um, get orchestras to record versions of the pop hits. 
So they'd, you know, the presenter would announce a wonderful hit that you wanted to hear, and they'd say, played by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, and play a cover version of the hit to get round this issue of needle time, because there were so many restrictions on it. And that was one of the things that it impacted on the ability of radio stations uh, in both our countries to, to grow in the early days. And this is still an area of conflict. It's come to court now and again. Um, you know, who is, the radio stations say, you want your records playing because it helps you sell them. And the artists say, yeah, but without our music, you wouldn't have a radio station. So there's that tension, which, as I say, occasionally comes to court, uh, and eventually it's all hammered out and they, they reach an agreement. But uh, it can get quite messy for, for understandable reasons. But there's a, a clear need to reward the people who've come up with the, uh, uh, the, the intellectual property. How to play the song? This is my jukebox, my front room. Uh, how to play the records. How do you decide how which records to play and how to play them. There was, uh, in the United States, uh, in the 1950s, radio stations really starting to lose audiences because television had come. Television was uh, broadcasting all sorts of things that radio used to do, drama, quizzes, etc. So radio was thinking, what, what, where do we go now? What do we do? And obviously playing more music was, was one of the answers. But they weren't quite sure how to play the music. And the story goes that um, in a bar in uh, Omaha, in Nebraska, the management of a radio station were having a sort of working meeting. And they sat there for hours on end, making notes, bouncing ideas off each other. And they realized that when anybody came in the pub and put money in the jukebox, they played the same songs. They wouldn't think, oh, I've not heard that album track before. I'll put a euro in and, and see how it sounds. That's not how it works. People were going in and requesting, effectively, the same songs over and over again. And, and it's true, that, that's what happens. So they thought, if that's what people would pay money for, if that's what they, when you give them the opportunity, they choose the biggest hits, they're not very exploratory, then that's maybe how radio should sound. And that was the birth of pop music radio that you have today. That's the reason why you hear on pop stations song after song after song that you've heard before. Because when people turn it on, it's like putting a, a euro in the jukebox, they want to hear a favorite song fairly quickly. So that was called the jukebox theory. that got rolled out to, well, influence radio across the world. And I'll come on to how it affected different formats as well, including uh, classical. So that was the, the jukebox theory. It was on air on some of the pirate radio stations, and because of that, it influenced then uh, what the BBC and state broadcasters did. So that was the trajectory of that thinking. The other thing that was changing about this time was the technology. You know, you started out with very primitive homemade devices. You've gone on to huge valve radios, which cost a fortune. I mean, they were so expensive. Do you know that the first... Uh, you've heard of DAB, the first DAB radio was just over a thousand pounds. And similarly, the first valve radio was, you know, it was a week's wages. Very few people could afford these radios. And they were also, you know, they, they worked off the mains, they weren't battery, the valve radios, and you couldn't take them on the back of your bike. So, you know, suddenly in the early 60s, the transistor radio became popular. At long last, radio was cheap and it was portable. And that was, you know, I talked about how exciting radio was when it first happened. Probably the second really exciting thing was the fact that it was now portable and it was affordable. 
and this is going to the 50s into the 1960s. And so the other day I learned that the design, the classic design of a radio, because a lot of radios still to this day have echoes of that, and it's a, a woman's handbag. That's what it was actually designed on. The, it's obvious when you know, is it? But, uh, but there we are. So transit, it's a funny handbag, I know, but um, that's another from my, my collection of, uh, of ancient radios. So cost and uh, portability was, uh, was, was the key issue there. What was happening in the market at round about this time well, the authorities were getting a bit worried about all these pirate radio stations squatting on wavelengths, causing disruption, etc., etc. Governments weren't in control of them, and you know that was like the pirate activity was happening in Britain as it happened in Ireland right through to the 80s. So the authorities getting worried about what's happening, and they start to close down the stations. And famously, in uh, August 1967, in Britain, the law that said you know you are not allowed to be British and work on pirate radio. So they got round that loophole and said, it doesn't matter where your ship is, if you're British and you're playing the Beatles out of the North Sea on a ship, don't come back to Britain. So they made it illegal in 1967. But of course, if you close down what is hugely popular, you've got to provide something in its place. So government and the civil servants were realizing if you're going to take away pirate radio, you had to create something else. And in Britain in 67, uh, we created Radio One, and it came on air. What happened was the old light program, which had been comedy and orchestral music, went both ways. We created Radio One and Radio Two, and Radio One was for young people. And the BBC weren't quite sure what it was all about. You know, it's a very crusty old BBC trying to create a radio station that sounded like the pirates used to sound. So they hired a lot of pirate presenters, rather like Tony Blackburn, and said, can, can you help us? So this is the opening link from uh, Tony Blackburn. Uh, it's still on the air to this day, and this is how he started his career at Radio 1. Stand by the switching, get tuned to Radio 1 or 2, 5, 4, 3, Radio 2, Radio 1, go. The voice of Radio 1. So there we are, the splitting of Radio 1 and Radio 2, and really the start of targeting radio stations actually saying, we're not broadcasting to everybody, we're going to work out who we're going to broadcast to. That splitting of those stations into, uh, into Radio 1 and 2, the sort of uh, formatic system you can hear on air now. And borrowing lessons, as I say, from the, the, the pirate ships on how they played music. What was happening to commercial radio? Well, in Ireland, it took some time to arrive. In Britain, it arrived very slowly in 1973. It was a political football. Uh, the Conservatives quite liked the thought of commercial radio, entrepreneurs, creating radio stations, making some money, jobs, and listeners, etc., business. Uh, the Labour governments really didn't like it. So as the governments kept changing, all the plans kept on being put on hold. So commercial radio struggled to get on air and eventually went on air in 1973. But it was, it was a little bit, you know, I have very fond memories of it, but it was actually quite staid, very BBC influenced, and had all sorts of rules and regulations about how uh, it was actually going to sound. So those were the early days of, of commercial radio. And uh, again, pirates starting to fill the gaps because 
those stations really weren't meeting the appetite of British listeners. They were becoming very popular because they were the only thing on air, but there were still holes. And again, pirates filling the gap. There was uh, the, uh, an offshore pirate called Laser 558, which broadcast from the North Sea, and also notably one from Ireland, Atlantic 252, which was you know, just had a huge transmitter from uh, County Meath, and it was playing just so, lots and lots of songs without all the dreary things that British commercial radio was doing, and everybody listened. It was a, a catalyst for British radio to change the influence of, of Atlantic 252 in Great Britain. So lots of change uh, around. And what happened really then onwards was more and more commercial radio stations coming on air in the UK. And inch by inch, we started to get specialization by genre. So for the first time, we were getting specialist jazz stations. We were getting specialist classical music stations. And we weren't just saying, this is a pop station. We were saying, what sort of pop is it? Is it a dance, urban, contemporary music? There are a couple of phrases in British radio that uh, we talk a lot about. Um, one is adult contemporary, and the other is CHR, contemporary hit radio. And those two formats are the biggest music formats in, in British radio, and around the world as well. Contemporary hit radio is sort of, you know, today's hits, actually quite energetic, strident, youth-targeted. Adult contemporary is a bit more grown-up, a little bit more melodic. Of course, you've got lots of others on the scale. You've got sort of urban and stuff like this there, and you've got soft AC, which is like easy listening down the other end. But radio stations are starting to be licensed to do very different jobs. To a certain extent, um, thanks to the uh, music, but also thanks to the targeting as well. Uh, when Radio 1 launched, uh, this was how its target audience was described. But for the first time, radio was starting to think, let's not just try to be everything for everybody, let's work out who the target listener is, who is that person who is going to consume that. Um, so there we are. That's, the, uh, that's the history, and the title of this talk was about the policy as well, and in a sense, the policy was about keeping the radio stations different. It was government saying, if we license station X, playing this music, and another station comes on air, you must do something different. So government was trying to engineer listening variety between the stations, and they did that through a, a, what's called a beauty parade licensing. You know, if you wanted to go on air, you had to say you were more beautiful than all the other Africans because you were going to do something very different from the others. And again, the same is true of, of, of licensing here in, in terms of, of how it's judged. So although some radio licenses to broadcast were awarded on a cash bid basis, national ones in the UK, a lot of them were about you know, how, how different are you? Do you appeal to different tastes of interest? So that difference was being engineered by government, by law, as opposed to now, where you've got so many frequencies available that actually the market, and this is the theory anyway, the market will sort itself out. You know, because you've got 10 stations targeting the same demographic, if you come on air with a new one, you'll go somewhere else naturally because this is, everybody else is going for the, the same audience. That makes sense. So uh, a different approach from, from regular, as regulation is eased as it has been in both our countries. So that's the past, brought you on today with, with where, where we've been since the very birth of radio <laughs> to today. So how do we win today? New topic, new chapter. How do we program music on radio stations today uh, all around the world? Well, it's, 
fact, I'm going to ask you this question. What, what do you think the driver is to radio listening? Why do, doesn't matter what format it is, can be news, can be classic, can be pop, why do you think people turn on the radio? What's the principal reason? Ask yourself the question from your own experience. Don't, don't think too hard. What's the reason? Don't like silence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Entertainment. Entertainment. Anything else? Company. Company. New music. New music. Yeah. Or I can do other things. Can do other things. Yeah. These are all great attributes. The one that people radio. It's sort of a mixture of those. But the key word, and, and you hit on a finger on here, is the way it makes you feel. I've done so many focus groups on this, and even when I was running LBC, the news station in London, it wasn't about I turn on LBC for the news. It was its company. I put it on, it fills the room, uh, etc. People that, when I've had a hard day at work, I turn it on because it makes me feel better. I put the radio on because I, it's just like something in the, in the house while I get ready to, to go out on a Saturday night. It's about the mood it puts you in. And it, that's the answer. Mood is about the answer to every question in radio for any format in the world. How does it make you feel? Because there's no opportunity cost. You can turn a radio station on. You can turn it off. You know, you must get something from it. And the way it makes you feel is the overriding uh, determiner of uh, what radio station you listen to and why. Music is critical to that feeling because you all know well the emotional response to a piece of music. There's so many studies about this. Here's one that talks about you know, chills and goosebumps, and we know those, where a song changes the mood you are in. You know, if it reminds you of your first love, or it reminds you of something horrible, or whatever, you know, how it can affect you, how a song can make you cry. So the pure emotion of, 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 of music is very powerful when we're talking about the, the mood uh, of radio. And Spotify do a lot of research into things like when the, when the sun shines. They know exactly which songs people go to when the sun shines. And if there's ever any debate about when you should start playing Christmas songs on the radio, you know, Spotify can give you data on when it is that all the favourites start being requested. And, you know, that's like a, you know, what Spotify is almost like a, a huge request show on radio, isn't it? So people are choosing songs for the mood, and the uh, latest research from Spotify suggests that on rainy days, people choose lower-energy, sadder-sounding music with uh, more acoustics. There we are. That's on rainy days. That's the sort of music that people um, refer to. It's, um, it's very subjective, um, the whole area of music, and you will well know that a piece of music that you feel incredibly strongly about a friend, your best friend, who shares your taste about everything else, sometimes isn't as mad about that particular piece of music as you are. It's very, very individual. So as a radio programmer, as I was, it was my job to play music not for me, but for having identified my target audience, the, the majority of those people play the right songs in the right order. I talked about uh, targeting of radio stations, and... Um, to give you some idea of how people do it, this is KISS, this is a downstation in Britain. Uh, it's for not just 16 to 34 year olds, but digitally native 16 to 34 year olds, and influencers, adopters, apprentices, entertained and contented, each of whom are as different as they are alike. That's how KISS defines the human being that is broadcasting. More and more radio stations, they're, they're getting, just like any brand, any product really, getting more and more uh, 
deceit about the actual person that they're talking to. I'll do another couple of these. Um, the good thing about knowing how old your listener is, you also know a bit about who they are. You know, if you're 55, you probably bought your first record in 1977. Do your own calculations. You know, it's a, it tends to be about 13, 14 when people start to define their own and it might not be buying a record, it could be streaming or whatever. 13, 14, 15 is when you, you know, your fondest memories will be of those songs that really you know, represent to you, you know, starting to become an adult and, and all the other things that happen. So we know a lot about our audience. And we start drawing pen portraits of these people. Um, this is from a few years ago, not very politically correct at all now. Um, but uh, you know, we, stations, poor old Lucy, stations illustrate their typical listener, well, they used to like this, as I, I, I hope it's slightly more politically correct now, but uh, uh, this, is, this is the sort of, we, we know a lot about Lucy and where she goes, what she does. But certainly to presenters, the talent, you know, we say, don't broadcast to yourself, think of Lucy. What would Lucy like? What, 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 what subjects is Lucy interested in? So the, the target listeners uh, and all that sort of stuff. And um, one thing, I, I sort of hinted at this a little earlier on with... Um, the jukebox theory, but familiarity is absolutely key. People like to know the songs. Um, the slight difference between male and female here, it's suggested that men are slightly braver with new music and they want to discover more and less so with women. That's what the research says. I, I exercise no, no, no judgment on it. Uh, but generally, both sexes actually, you know, you, you like a song, uh, you like it more because you are familiar with it. And this particular piece of research, Music and Emotions in the Brain, uh, suggested that you're, if you know a piece of music, the emotions are much stronger, whether you like it or dislike it, than if you don't know a piece of music. It makes absolute sense. So familiarity is, uh, is, is very important. And... Again, you can acquire a liking for a song, and you probably stumbled across like you. So you hear a song, you think quite like it, but you grow to like it more and more and more. And the same is true of a lot of things in life, which is why radio stations tend to you know, play them pretty frequently. And also, there is um, endorsement, recommendation. You know, a presenter introducing a new song. Here's the new song by artist so-and-so, or played by so-and-so. Here's something new. You're saying to your friend, you're the presenter on the air, you're saying to their friend, this is interesting, have a listen to this. And that actually helps that introduction of, uh, of new music to a listener. And some more research here from uh, Spotify, how music is changing because of the way it's accessed. Uh, a few years ago, the choruses used to um, not many songs hit the chorus in the first 15 seconds, but they are now. So songs now will have a, a, a very quick start, not a very long introduction in terms of the way they are written, not a very long introduction, and they'll hit the chorus really soon because people want instant gratification. They want the, they turn, they want the, the song and they want it to sing the bit that they can sing along with as quickly as possible. And songs now end. They used to fade away and now they end. So the structure of music is, is changing because of the platform, platforms like radio and platforms like Spotify. It's a fascinating area that we as programmers um, know a lot about now. So what do you do as a radio programmer? First of all, you've got to work out who your audience is, then you work out 
who your what 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 your strategy is, what what sort of music you're going to play. Is it jazz? Is it classic? Is it pop? What sort of pop? So you have to work all that out. And if you're going to mix up formats, you've got to work out which sit with other people. So it's no good playing, if you're going to play two sorts of music, if every time you play one sort of music, all the other people hate it, you've got to find two sets of music that actually coalesce nicely together, which is called clustering of music. So we have to do a lot, and we do a lot of research, huge amount of research, to work out what sort of music policy would work for our target audience. That's the first thing we do. And secondly, we research the songs. We will commission fairly extensive research where we will play listeners' songs and ask them, are they familiar with it? So level of familiarity. Uh, they like it. And also what we call burn. And burn is, I used to like that song, but I'm really sick of it now. So we get all these as programmers, I get all this data about every piece of music that we play. Is it, is it right now? Is it, and, and obviously when we work in the business, it's like chocolate in a chocolate factory. We get so sick of the songs we are playing. But you have to actually take into account the audience. Is, you know, if the audience are still loving it, we've got to carry on playing it. So a lot, a lot of research now, most radio companies are doing research to make sure that the songs they're playing are absolutely bullseye. Some people say, hang on a minute, can't we be more imaginative than that? Can't we play more unfamiliar music, fresh music, new music? Well, yes, we can, but it's really difficult to, make a sub to create a substantial audience from that sort of policy. And it's good that, in a sense, you've got publicly funded radio that can accept that they won't get big audiences, but here is something that's valuable to do, because there is a, a role for stations playing lesser-known tracks, but it's difficult to deliver a huge audience if, if that's, uh, that's all you do all the time. This pretty picture, what's this? This is a format clock. So every hour of the day on most radio stations, again, whatever the format, will be divided up into a number of bits. So this is the, this is the hour, so that's the clock, five hours, 10 hours, quarter hours, whatever. And you can see here we've got a, um, a current song, followed by a recurrent song, followed by a, a, an oldie, followed by a current song, followed by a recurrent. So this is how, how we mix this is the recipe for the hour. So you imagine you've got all these songs that you've researched, and you know they're all great songs. What order do you play them in? You have to think, okay, well, I don't want all my current songs together, and then all my oldies together, so you have to mix them in. And this is also where we would insulate new songs. So if you're going to play a new song, which, you know, every station does, there is a song that you haven't played before, you probably would play that one out of a, uh, a break where a presenter has spoken, because you know on radio often they'll play two songs back to back, whereas if it's new, they'll probably play that after they've spoken, so that they can say, hey, here's a great song. So this is, this is what happens for every hour of every day on a radio station, uh, a clock like this. It, it was done literally once by hand, by boxes of records marked for categories. Now it's all completely computerized, so a computer, you won't see that clock, you'll get a computerized <coughs> list of what to play, but it will be determined by all the rules you put in the computer. The computer will know everything about the songs and everything about your music policy, what sound you're hoping to, uh, to establish. And this is... Um, I'm not sure I understand. Sorry. This is um, Avicii. Wait, young. And these are the days of the week. And these are the hours of the day. 
And that pretty pattern is the fact that this song was played at 5 o'clock in the morning on the 26th of February. It was then played at 8 o'clock in the morning the same day, 10 o'clock, uh, 3 in the afternoon, etc. So again, you started to get separation. So if you woke up to that song on Tuesday morning at 8 o'clock, you won't wake up to it at 8 o'clock on a Wednesday morning. It will be at 11 o'clock. So you're playing them frequently, but you are playing them. And this is called rotation. This is like rotating the songs. And the gap between them is called minimum separation, for obvious reasons. So a station can program and say, actually, I want my songs no more than uh, three hours apart, or two hours apart, or five hours apart, depending on how much people listen to your radio session. The other thing to bear in mind is we know how long people listen to radio. And most people listen to it in chunks of you know 20 minutes, half an hour. They get up, they hear it a little bit, or they get in the car, or they drive to wherever it is. You, you do get very heavy listeners, but the bulk of radio listeners listen for a fairly short period of time. So going back to that clock, we try to ensure that even if you only hear 20 minutes of that radio station, you get this blend of music. And this is what makes the, uh, uh, the, the music um, feel fresh, even though it's actually much of the same. As a presenter, what you'll be given uh, is a, usually a paper printout. Uh, so you'll go into the studio, again, whatever the format, with a paper printout, which will tell you what the tracks are. Here they are. Four of those. Uh, how long they are, etc. Sometimes a little bit of information about it. This uh, particular log is quite an old one. This was from the first day ever of Classic FM in the UK. So when Classic FM launched, this was the first hour. So uh, Zadok the Priest was the first ever melody uh, played by Classic FM in the United Kingdom. And the interesting thing about that classical radio station is unlike the BBC's Radio 3, which is fairly serious, earnest, quality radio station, very, very loyal audience, Classic said, actually, classic music should be for everybody, shouldn't it? So what Classic FM did was to program their radio station exactly like the pop station would be programmed. Again, how often are we going to play Zebra the Priest? How often are we going to play Prokofiev, etc.? So they were, all the same science was being adapted for classical music, for Classic FM, as, and you know, it's a runaway success. That radio station is absolutely huge, far, far more popular than Radio 3. There's a case for both, very much. But you know, isn't it great that a station like this can get a very broad audience because it played very familiar classics? And we've just had another station in Britain called Scala, which has gone on air again with light uh, classics. So um, lots and lots of different stations coming on air, but as a presenter, that, that's what you'll get, and you'll be told um, how to use that. And we'll finish off um, just by a quick note about making songs sound special. I hinted at this earlier on, that one of the jobs of a presenter is um, making the next bit sound unmissable. Here's a presenter called Richard Allenson talking about that. The challenge now, and it is a challenge every day, is to try to use as few words as possible, but the right ones, and deliver them in the right way to set up the listener to enjoy the next song I'm going to play. Because I've always thought that that's my job. If I can say, look, if you like that, fine, but this you're going to enjoy just as much, even more perhaps. And it's setting it up. Alan Freeman always used to do it by the music jingles and the orchestral pieces he would use to set up the next song he was going to play. On the chart show, he always convinced me there was nothing better I could do with my time than to listen to the next song 
you was about to play because he was going to be better than this one. What? I can't wait to hear it. And the fanfare would stop and the music would start. And it's like, you know, the house lights go down, the curtains go up, the stage lights come on at the start of every record. You can't do it at the start of every record, but that's proper music presentation, I think. So the role of the um, presenter in making the next piece of music in whatever format sound interesting, introducing it to your friend. And here's a, a fellow programmer of mine um, making the song sound special. Because it, even though as broadcasters we know we're playing the same piece of music over and over again, we don't want it to sound like that. So it's about making it sound like you play this song for the very first time. And that's part of the job of, uh, of being a presenter. Um, I'll just miss this other uh, example uh, for year one. Um, I know some of you are working, just to finish off, on a 15-minute feature, I gather. Um, so i just give just a, a couple of helpful hints um, in putting together. So who is the audience? Who is going to listen to your feature? I've talked about target audiences earlier on. You will know who's going to be considering your feature. So have them in mind. It's not a feature for you, it's a feature I would suggest for the person who is considering your work. What is the treatment? What's the creative treatment? How, you, know, you can do the obvious thing, just, you know, first ideas, oh, we'll do this, this, this. Hang on a minute, is there a better way of outlining this? You know, if you watch any TV show, they'll have thought about the treatment. You know, they'll have a story to tell and they'll work out, hang on, is, are we going to start off interviewing her at home? Are we going to start off with her walking down the path and banging on the door? How are we going to treat this subject? What's a, what's a way of doing it? And sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a, a novel way. What is the journey? What is the story? Most great radio is, is about storytelling. You're telling a story. And how is that story going to be told? Who is speaking? If you're going to be interviewing people, cast them wisely. Um, one of my fellow consultants used to say, there's no such thing as a boring story, only a boring storyteller. You know, we've all got friends who are incredibly entertaining. It's not that they live more entertaining lives, it's just that they're really good at telling stories. So in casting your piece, if you are going to interview, you know, choose the interesting people rather than somebody, sometimes somebody who really knows their stuff isn't as good as somebody who no, a lot of it, but actually it's just much more interesting to talk to. Um, scripts, obviously, if you've got a script, focus on it, and it's a script to be read on air as if you're talking to someone else. So you write it in a different way. You, and I can always hear, and it really annoys when I listen to the radio, and I think that script has been written for the page and not written for... So you think, how would I really express this if I were talking? And it's simple sentences. Simple sentences. It's saying... Um, say things in a particular order. You know, the press would say David Lloyd, comma, 42, comma, etc. But you wouldn't say that. You know, you, you don't, if you give somebody's age, you don't say it in that way. So the script concentrate on that. The delivery, how you deliver it. You know, don't deliver it all in a monotone fashion. Uh, but don't also deliver it in a, you've probably heard those awful newsreaders who hammer out the last word of every sentence. In a very strange way. Why are you doing that? And, and, and the more that newsreaders do that, then new newsreaders think that's the way to read the news. I think one of the silly boys were reading the news. <laughs> so, you know, delivery is about how would you say, what's the most important bit of that sentence? Lift those out in the delivery. Edit, 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 edit. You'll have written the whole thing, then ask yourself, if I had to lose five minutes, if I had to lose 20 sentences, what would I lose? Because simplicity, you know, 
people listening to it haven't got notes in front of them. They haven't, you, you, you can't do a lot of complicated things. Radio's a wonderful thing, but not for complex detail. So just editing and make sure you've got just the right stuff in there. A review, revise and revise, etc. So that is a, I could talk for three days about this sort of thing, but just a few headlines on it. If you are putting together a 15 minute feature about anything, then those are the, the things to bear in mind. And finally, just on the future, where is it all going? Radio, audio, it is the most exciting time there's ever been, I think, and the biggest change in our industry since the invention of, of television, because of course now we have got so many radio stations with digital and AM and FM, you've got streaming, uh, you've got podcasting, all these other things. So it makes it very exciting, but incredibly different. And radio in the next 20 years will be very different from how it is now. Just to put in some context um, how it is now, uh, one thing we, we often look at just briefly is uh, the share of ear. Um, of all the things that you listen to, put television audio to one side, so all the other things, the entertainment sources, which sort of boil down probably to these, you know, oh, music you, you, you have on a device, or you have a, a CD of own music, music you stream, podcasting and live radio. Of, if, if, if the ear is 100%, what proportion of ear time do you think is now podcasting? Have a guess. What percent? But 100% of share of ear, podcasting, guess how much of ear time on average? 10%? 50 percent? 90%? 25. 25, 75. And live radio? 20. So these are the answers. There we are. Look. Live radio still phenomenally. So Podcasting, a lot of talk about podcasting, a lot of talk about streaming, and they are growing, and they are growing very, very quickly. And it's wrong to sell us. No, no worry at all to radio. Um, you know, they are changing the face of radio. But at the moment, actually, most people are listening to live, linear radio still. Everything else is growing a lot. I don't want to diminish it, but at the moment, live radio is uh, is still ruling because of its convenience, because of the, the relationship people have with radio stations, a whole host of reasons. But that is the way things are. So. Um, a few more facts there. There we are. As to um, where radio is currently. But for the future, um, the, the filters have gone. Years ago, you needed a frequency, and a frequency was a very rare thing. Now, because of the distribution, uh, that filter's gone. So the market can take care of itself. So we're going to see lots and lots and lots of different ways of getting music from A to B, and the ones which will become the biggest will, I suspect, be the biggest brands. You know, if you're stuck in front of a smart speaker with no other clues, and you want something, you will ask for it. Now, if you know the radio station name that you want, you will get it. If you don't, you won't. And that radio station could come from Dublin, or it could come from San Francisco. So we suddenly open up the whole world of audio um, to being a very, very different and exciting place. And people say, oh, are you, as a radio person, are you threatened by this? I, I, I just think it's, it's very different, but it's very exciting. And the great thing is, we do have a future, because whatever happens in our world of audio and radio, whatever happens, what new technologies dreamt up, etc., people will always have two ears, and they'll want to do something with, something will go into them. And 
we have to regard that as, as practitioners in radio and audio. There we are. That's all I was going to say. Uh, we've got to have a few chapters there, otherwise it'll be midnight. Won't it? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures. Stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral Sea. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.